Okay, welcome everybody. Spiritual Psychotherapy, episode 16. Um, so this class I want to do a little bit differently. Um, instead of starting off with um, what we usually do, which is the Tao Te Ching, I want to start off with more Zen stuff because I almost miss it and I find it so intriguing uh, to discuss Zen, which was of course influenced by both Taoism um, and uh, other types of Buddhism. Um, so it gives us another flavor, I think, by which to kind of approach this uh, question of consciousness that we're usually opening ourselves to whenever we enter this space. So let's set this intention to be as present as we possibly can, you know, throughout this class, because that's really what it's all about. Um, and of course, you know, second half of the class, as usual, will be dedicated towards the Zohar. We have some really deep stuff that I, you know, have been reading still about Bereshit with regards to the Zohar. So one quick aside, you know, I finished reading uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's beautiful book called The Diamond That Cuts Through Illusion. And it's really, you know, it's so beautiful to hear from a person who has been through so much, um, you know, such a, a, a peaceful way of living um, and an understanding way of living. And his fundamental point is about seeing the non-self elements that go into anything that you're looking at or anybody that you're approaching. So when you're approaching a patient, you know, for, me, for myself, I can't just look at this patient as an isolated person. I need to see who is their family. You know, what is their social structure like? What biological factors led them to where they are right now? So what we call the biopsychosocial model. And this is so amazing because it gives you an automatic compassion, an automatic understanding when you approach a person and their unique situation, instead of judging constantly, instead of coming from a place of, I'm separating you off from the rest of the universe, and I'm going to make you feel otherized. That's kind of a term that I, that I kind of coined myself, to otherize somebody. You know, you're making them feel cut off from all of reality. You're making their ego feel separate. You're doing them probably the biggest spiritual disservice you can do. But what spiritual service can I provide for somebody is allowing them to get an insight and allowing myself to have an insight into the non-self elements that go into who I'm seeing right in front of me. And when I do that, I can approach them with the ultimate compassion, I think. So let's uh, you know, go right into the Zen stuff now. So these are quotes from a lecture from Alan Watts about Zen that I found really just super intriguing. And uh, I would love to hear from you guys any comments or questions that you might have. Zen has been summed up in four statements. Number one, a direct transmission outside scriptures and apart from tradition. Two, no dependence on words or letters. Three, direct pointing to the human mind. And four, seeing into one's own nature and becoming Buddha. Buddha being the definition of the awakened one. So right from the get-go now we have these kind of four ways of summing up what this is. And ironically, we're using words, but what was the second thing that we said? We said that it's no dependence on words or letters. So there's an inherent irony and an inherent catch-22 with Zen. Which is that if you think you understand Zen, you don't understand Zen. And if you think that you can put it into words, you haven't put anything into words. And that's kind of this, this everlasting fleeting nature of Zen. It really does deal with the domain of, of experience that can't be talked about. 
one must remember at the same time that there's really nothing at all that can be talked about adequately. And the whole art of poetry is to say what can't be said. Every artist feels, when he gets to the end of his work, that there's something absolutely essential that was left out. So Zen has always described itself as a finger pointing at the moon. So that's the nature of reality, right? We always talk about it. You can never actually capture reality with words. It's always ineffable. Everything is ineffable. We're going to see how that plays out so beautifully and poetically throughout this lecture. Um, in the Sanskrit saying, Tat Vam Asi, that art thou. You know, whatever you're looking for, whatever the self is that you're trying to discover, you're it. The stuff of the universe, you're it. You're that. Whatever all of it is, that's really what you are. You're not separate from it. Like we said from the Thich Nhat Hanh stuff, you are intimately and vitally connected to the context that's constantly bringing you about. The, the spatial context, right? The universe. And also the temporal context. The Big Bang until right now. Zen is concerned with that. That, of course, is the word which is used for, for Brahman, the absolute reality, in Hindu philosophy, and you're it, only in disguise, right? So Zen is thatness, it's suchness, right? The, this idea that they talk about is called ta-ta-ta, which is that-that-that, you know, th you are that. And stop trying to think about that, just connect with the stuff of reality right now, Um so you're, you're all of this stuff, but you're, right now you're playing this part. You're in disguise. And you're disguised so well that you've forgotten it. Like we always talk about this Hindu idea of God being, you know, playing this game of cosmic hide-and-seek with himself. And the ultimate humor at the end of this game is going to be God discovering himself. And, you know, one of the things that is so beautiful is that when a, a person in Zen or when a Hindu or a Buddhist sees another Hindu or Buddhist, they bow to them because they're bowing to this, you know, basically manifestation of God that is playing its part so well and, you know, disguised so well as another face of, you know, some random person. But as we talk about like faces of God or Selim Elohim, Everybody being created in the image of God. I think it's a hint at that same idea. Um, unfortunately, ideas like the ultimate ground of being, the self, Brahman, ultimate reality, the great void, all that is very, very abstract talk. And Zen is concerned with a much more direct way of coming to an understanding of that or thatness, as it's called. Right. So Zen is not interested in philosophizing or pontificating, which you might not know based on listening to these you know, talks from me. Because I enjoy that very much. But, uh, that, you know, the point is not to stop at that. The point is to, you know, continue on from the words and, and from the pointing and actually look at what it's pointing to, which is the thatness. Ta-ta-ta in Sanskrit, I think, first of all, the appeal of Zen lies in its unusual quality of humor. Religions aren't, as a rule, humorous in any way, he says. Religions are serious. And when one looks at Zen art and reads Zen stories, it's quite apparent that something is going on here which isn't serious in the ordinary sense, however sincere it may be. Um, so he's saying, you know, there's something about Zen 
that has a lightness to it, a lack of seriousness to it, other classes inside. If you're looking for it, but fundal to, to this one if you like. This is spiritual psychotherapy, and that's uh, an Israel talk in there. Oh, I was looking for Leon, but... Oh, for Leon. Okay, yeah, I don't think he's giving a class tonight, so you're more than welcome. So we're, we're going over a, a, a lecture from Alan Watts, um, and we're talking about different Eastern philosophies. Um, so it, there's something about Zen that's not serious. It's not supposed to be taken as a serious venture. It's supposed to be something that's almost lighthearted and relaxed. Um, and you know when you there's a difference between seriousness and sincerity. You could be doing something sincerely, like playing an instrument or playing baseball, but you know at the end of the day it's not serious. It's just a game. That's the the feeling when it comes to these Eastern stuff. So he says here to Westerners, or so I think what what has appealed to Westerners is that Zen has no doctrines. There's nothing you have to believe, and it doesn't moralize at you very much. Right, so that's what we are craving almost because we grew up in a society where there's rules and there's morals and you have to do X, Y, and Z. But we, it's very appealing to us to hear, oh, there's another way. There's a way of you know, approaching reality, not from a moral point of view, not, which is not to say you should discard morality, but to talk about it in a way that's not specifically concerned with morality towards understanding the world. So he says it's not particularly concerned with morals, at all. It's a field of inquiry rather like physics. So that's why people tell me all oh, this stuff is Avodazara. I say baloney. It's not Avodazara, it's like physics. They say what is Zen? Is Zen. Zen is just. Uh, it's like psychology. Yeah. Exactly. Isn't it just a, a, a philosophy of. Uh, Meditation and thinking right. about the world? How do you know when you're taking questions? Yes, no, right now. Oh, okay. So For sure. No. So is Zen Japanese or... Um, a Zen is, is Japanese because it comes from the Buddhist traditions that were brought from China to Japan. And it was influenced by those Buddhist traditions as well as Taoism oh, so, so. In, in Japan. So the reason I'm asking is because um, there were some rabbis um, and other people who were saved during the Holocaust. They were escaped to Shanghai in China. And um, I remember uh, hearing a speech somewhere along the line that some rabbis didn't want to be pulled by rickshaws because they found it, it like it demeaned the human being who was pulling mm. them. And so um, I'm not clear about like bowing to another person. Would yeah. Jesus yeah. allow that? So well, it's not one of the halakhic bells, right? Exactly. It's one of those, uh, you know, just... Yeah, I, I, I would say that it's it's almost like a hello. It's like shaking somebody's hand. That's the way I see it, but you can ask your local Orthodox rabbi for that kind of thing. But yeah, that's the way I see it. But it's a great it's a great point. I think it shows the fundamental difference between the way Judaism relates to a lot of these things versus the way these Eastern guys do. A great point. All right, so it's not really concerned with morality. In particular, it's concerned more with like a field of inquiry like physics. Um, so you don't expect a physicist to discuss authoritatively about morals, even though as a human being he has moral interests and problems, but as a physicist, he's not a moral authority. Doesn't it, um, on a little bit, it, it, um, um, Zen values uh, humility and... Uh, yeah, definitely. So so it's it does value that stuff, but not as kind of like the, the, the foundation. The, the, the moral stuff in Zen is really for the sake of seeing clearly. 
Uh-huh. It's not for the sake of an ultimate being goodness. It's the sake of how do I just, you know, see the world as it is. Because if you're stealing and, you know, pillaging, you're not going to have time to sit in silent meditation. It's not about being good per se. But that's a fantastic question. All right. So, so the same way a physicist is not a moral authority, or if you go to an oculist or an ophthalmologist to have your eyes adjusted, that is so you can see clearly. And Zen is spiritual ophthalmology. My first class of spiritual psychotherapy, we're on number 16 right now. Number one was called, the title, spiritual ophthalmology. And this is where it was inspired from. Zen has been described as when hungry eat, when tired sleep. And when the student got that description, he said, well, doesn't everybody do that? And the master said, they don't. When hungry, they don't just eat, but think of 10,000 things. When tired, they don't just sleep, but dream innumerable dreams. The fascination of Zen to the West is that it promises a sudden insight into something that is always supposed to take years and years and years. Right? So that's the way Zen works. Is it's, it's promising you know, one form of Zen is the sudden school of Zen. And it's fascinating to us because it's like, wait, you don't have to earn it? I thought from my Western upbringing is that, uh, you know, I got to be a good person and I got to be on a certain level and I got to be worthy. But it's, you know, from the Zen perspective, it's like, no, it could happen right away. The psychoanalysts, if you're mixed up, they tell you the trouble you've got yourself into all over all these years can't be undone in a day. And therefore... It will take many, many sessions, maybe twice a week for several years for you to get straightened out. And, you know, the, all, the, all your psychological complexes, uh-huh. you can't overcome them in a day. You need, But Zen would say, no, just drop it all right now. This moment. There's a way of sudden insight into reality. So the Zen approach is just like, just don't be unstable, bro. I don't understand. How does that... It's 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 a funny so that's the thing you have to kind of study what Zen teaches in order to have that sudden insight. But the, I understand letting go of things. I I don't know if you could just does 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 Zen claim you could just drop everything? It does it does and but you have to you know you have to decide to drop everything and that's where the trickiness comes in because we cling we don't always very easily drop everything all at once. Good question. Uh, but it'll become clearer as you hear more of this, like the flavor of how to, how to get there. The Christians say that if you embark on a path of spiritual discipline, you get yourself a spiritual director and submit yourself to the will of God, but you may not get into the high states of contemplative prayer for many, many years. The Hindus, the Vedanta society people, the Buddhists also say you'll require many long years of meditation, very hard concentration, very difficult practice, and stern discipline. And then maybe you will make enough progress in this life to become a monk in your next life. And then you'll make enough progress to enter some of the preliminary stages leading to Buddhahood. But it's all likely to take you many, many incarnations. All right, so all that stuff is promising many years down the line or many generations down the line even. But when this artist Hasagawa was asked, how does one see into Zen? He said, it may take you three seconds. It may take you 30 years. I mean that. That's a direct quote. Uman Khan, which means the gateless gate, contains such stories as the student. I say student rather than monk because Zen students are not monks in our sense of the of the word monk. Welcome, ID. I'm glad you found your way on. Hi, Mikey. How you doing? Baruch yeah. Abba. Yeah, no, no, I'm 
Good stuff. Yeah, just for tonight. Just for tonight because we got a different class in the other Zoom. Um, but okay, welcome. Great. Hold on a second. No worries. All right, now I should, you can see me now? Yeah, I can see. You can see my screen? Yeah, I see it. I got it. Great. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, we're out there on Zoom. So that's good stuff. Um, so, yeah, we're just discussing Zen, and we said that it's possible to understand it all in three seconds. Um, so what is this gateless gate? So there's a story, you know, it contains a lot of stu- uh, stories about these students. Um, here he says, let's see. Uh, so the 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 the, the, yeah, the master said to the student, um, oh, sorry, the first one of the students in the book says to the master Joshu, I've been here in this monastery for some time and I've had no instruction from you. So the master Joshu looks at the student. And he says, Have you had breakfast? And the student says, Yes. He says, Then go wash your bowl. And the monk was awakened. Just from that. The student was awakened just from being told, you had breakfast? All right, go wash your bowl. Another story in this book concerns a master who said, when a cow walks out of the enclosure, the horns and the head, the four legs and the body all get through that enclosure, but not the tail. How is it that the tail can't get through? And nobody can answer this. Right? So it's supposed to... Hey, maybe he got caught on the door going out. <laughs> It could. That's a good point. I think. No, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Just it's not Jewish, but if you saw the other day, there's a slaughterhouse in the Queens. Yeah. And and the guy, the when they were slaughtering the not kosher, but when they were slaughtering it, the guys getting there, it was heated, so they opened up the gate, and the cow was running all over Queens, <laughs> and they had to catch the cow. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. amazing. I love that you brought that story because that's the ultimate thing of Zen is that if I would philosophize now about what's the meaning of the tail not fitting through, all right. But the point is it's supposed to be like Alan Watts is going to say in a minute. It's supposed to be like humor. If it has to be explained to you, it's the equivalent of explaining a joke. You ruin the joke. The point of the story is to hit you intuitively. So let's see from the, these coming stories if we can have that same feeling. Right. Right, and and the truth is, like you say, because I'm a big fan of the fact that when when you're telling the story, the levity definitely adds spice to the 100%, story. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So these are these are some of my favorite. This is really these stories are the main reason why I brought this lecture because I just love them very much. So let's see what else he got. He has here. He says um, another story. It tells of a certain master called Baijan, who was so good that he had hundreds of students, and they couldn't all be housed in one monastery. So he had to find one of the students who could also be a master. So he arranged for a test. He put down a picture in front of them all. Right, this is my favorite story. He puts a picture in front of all the students. And he said, without making an assertion or without making a denial, tell me, what is this? Pointing at the picture. And the senior monk said, it couldn't be called a piece of wood. The teacher did not accept this answer. But the monastery cook came forward and kicked the picture over and walked away. And he got the job. Wow. Right? So to me, it's that. It's that ability to hit you with the realness of the thing of this moment in a certain unique way. And it shouldn't be even explained. It's supposed to hit you intuitively. So he says, all these stories resemble jokes in this sense. The joke is told to make you laugh. 
When you get the point of a joke, you laugh spontaneously. But if the point has to be explained to you, you don't laugh it's so not well. A joke. You force a <laughs> laugh. Exactly. It's not. It's not a joke. You, you you totally missed it. There's some kind of sudden impact between the punchline and the laugh, and so in exactly the same way, with these stories, there's expected to be something else than laughter, which is sudden insight into the nature of being. That one day. You'll hear one of these stories, and by accident, all of a sudden, you'll have an aha, mystical moment. When an inquirer about Zen came to a master, often, you know, they approach the Zen master with a kind of key question. What is the fundamental principle of Buddhism? Or why did the bearded barbarian come from the West? Because, of course, Zen is supposed to have been brought into China by a Hindu named Bodhidharma, Bodhidharma always represented as having this big bushy beard and a very fierce eyes, right, to him. Bodhidharma always insisted that he had nothing to teach, right? And if that's the case, if Bodhidharma had nothing to teach, then why did he come? That's one of the fundamental questions. So when he first came to China sometime a little before 500 AD, he was interviewed by the Emperor Wu of Liang. The emperor was a great patron of Buddhism. He said, we have caused many monasteries to be built, monks and nuns to be ordained, and the scriptures to be translated into Chinese. What is the merit of this? Right? So the, the, this emperor is feeling all high and mighty and self-righteous about his merits. And Bodhidharma said, no merit whatsoever. That really set the emperor back, because the popular understanding of Buddhism is that you do good things like that with religious things, and you acquire some merit, and this leads you to being, you know, le- leading a better life in the future, so that you eventually become liberated. And so he was totally right. set back, right? So he he was buying into this, like, you know, let me become better, so that I get enlightened. Um, he said, "Well, what is the first principle of the holy doctrine?" Bodhidharma said, "Vast emptiness and nothing holy." Mm. Or in vast emptiness, there is nothing holy. So the emperor said, "Who is it then?" That stands before us. The implication being, aren't you supposed to be a holy man? And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. So there's something about this story that's supposed to hit you. That here's a guy approaching somebody who's trying to be all self-righteous and says, well, if it's not about righteousness, then what is all of this about? He says, well, it's all about everything's emptiness and nothing is holy. And he says, then who are you? He says, I have no idea. So doesn't, I mean, doesn't that kind of sound like it, that like like Buddhism can't make you discover who you are? Or that That's the great irony. The great irony is that it teaches selflessness of consciousness. That when looking for yourself, the point of all of this is that there's nothing to find. That you're supposed to find almost nothing and no one. And we talk about yesh me'ayin, Hashem. We talk about Hashem creating the world, something from nothing. And the hachamim say, Hashem is the ayin. We're going to do the second half of the class. It's going to be Zohar. So, God is the nothingness. And there's something so about words, that. You're yeah. following the path. It's a path to happiness. But you're not really... What do you, 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 the happiness is you do, you already have it. You're not finding it. Exactly. No, so I can relate it. Exactly. I can relate it to 
my the guy that really got me on a motivational track i told you four decades ago dr wayne dyer of course that one of dyer's famous lines was there is no way to happiness yes happiness is the way i was just gonna quote that exact thing with the word peace <laughs> from Thich Nhat Hanh. we started the, the class with Thich Nhat Hanh. id you're reading my mind over right. here that Thich Nhat Hanh says there is no path to peace peace is uh -huh. the way it's the wow, exact yeah, that's, that's same right. thing. Right. Same Dyer, exact that, idea. That was the first thing I learned from Dyer 40 years ago. There is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. You find it by doing less, by being here, so much here, that you realize, holy cow, there was never anything for me to find. That the constant seeking is pointless. It's all about right here, right now. So um, where, where do they talk? Let's say they're talking about, I'm uh, just curious, the Zen and the Tao and, and all these other guys that you bring into the mix. Where do they talk about going into rewind? In other words, like, wow, I should have did this. I should have done that. If I had that, if that happened. If they, in other words, in a road to happiness, yeah. oh, I, I missed that deal. I missed that girl. I you know what they'll tell guy. you? I that. You know what they'll tell you? They'll tell you all these thoughts are thoughts happening right now. That's a total illusion. The past is a total illusion. So is it, is it similar to Kohelet Habel Habalim HaKohelet? Yeah, in a, in a way, yes. I have a whole class series on on, on Kohelet, and I, I tried to connect it to that idea in certain at certain points in the mm -hmm. book. But that's a great point. And I think the, the right, key is when yeah, you're so in the moment. Yeah. Because Dyer wrote a book called Gifts from Icus. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. And Icus spelled backwards as Sky S K Y E. That was his daughter. That was his daughter's name. Wow. So he made it called Icus. And the entire book was a parable about going to a planet where you could go into rewind and correct everything that you wanted to. Wow. And did that turn out well for the protagonist? Yeah, I mean, it was you know, it was, it was a cute story. But, you know, but you, he, and he always, in his speeches, when I saw him in live, in person, on video, whatever, he always said that, you know, if you want to go into rewind, you know, you do, he, he's a big fan of, you don't go into rewind. Yes. But he said he wrote, he wrote the book so you could hallucinate that you're going to, that you can go into rewind. I love it. And I know you told that, you, the friend of yours, you said, uh, life is not a cassette tape. You can't hit rewind. He spoke in, in Sephardic for us that one time. Right. Amazing, right, right, amazing. Right, right, right. I love it. It's right. all connecting. <laughs> right. But I think the key is yeah. that it's all it's all stemming from this moment. And once you're so in this moment, it almost is like, why am I worrying so much about the past or the future? Let me be present and realize that all that stuff is, is not even close to as real as right here, right now. Um, so out of, out of curiosity, the, 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 the threads of all these different uh, let's say models you're bringing in do you think that they're that they're they're uh connect i i assume you think they're connected otherwise you wouldn't bring them into play yeah. <laughs> whether it's the Tao or zohar yes. or, uh, or buddha or dyer or whoever this, these <laughs> these like these guys are or these people are there's a common thread so like where's wh how do you how do you so yeah, how do which you connect all of them? Which route do you take? I think on the one hand, you can sometimes see differences, and that's fine, because I think we're human beings, and we need different styles at different times. 
But at the same time, I think Buddhism almost flows through all of it in the sense that Buddhism is not telling you to do anything differently. It's saying whatever you're doing, be present. So when you're learning Torah, be present. If you're being Hazan, be present. If you're going to work, be present. And just watch and don't identify with the passing phenomena. Don't identify with the, the next thought. And, and, the, and, the, and the Buddha is what part of Asia? Is it Japan? China, so yeah, it's, or it's everything? really Zen it's Buddhism was, was in Japan. In Japan, right. Exactly. So then the, the, my playbill of the Wabasabi and the yeah. Ikikai, well, that, <laughs> yes. it all plays into that world of, Very Islam, much of so. uh, Buddha, Buddhism. Right? So right. much so. Exactly. I love so this. Is, it's beautiful because I love how you're seeing a, almost like a panoramic view of all this and like how does it connect? Exactly. That, that's the thousand dollar word I was looking for. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's good stuff. <laughs> so let's see. I just want to give you even more of a flavor of this and it should start to resonate even more. Um, so now it's saying too much, says Alan Watts. I warn you to say that Zen is trying to point to the physical universe. So Bobby, this is what I was, I was afraid of saying this earlier. Don't say that Zen is pointing to the physical universe so that you could look at it without forming ideas about it. That is saying too much. But it is the general idea. It's in the direction of being the right idea. Zen people speak of the virtue of Mushin, which means no mind, or Munan, no thought. This is not an anti-intellectual attitude. The ordinary simple person is just as bamboozled by thinking as a university professor. You can think intellectually in a no-think way. That's the art. You're just experiencing. Exactly. Exactly. You can be intellectual, but don't identify with the thoughts that are passing. Be the awareness as the thoughts are coming. You could be the smartest guy on earth, but just be present with the thoughts. So it, does, it doesn't mean not to have any thoughts at all. It means not to be fooled by thoughts, not to be hypnotized by the forms of speech and images that we have for the world, not to be hypnotized by them into thinking that this is the way that reality is. So if I say this is a fan, like he holds up a fan, it isn't to begin with fan as a noise, um, and this doesn't make the noise fan, but it can be many other things in a fan, right? If uh, uh, It could be a back scratch, it could be all sorts of things that don't let... So what he's saying is don't let the words limit the possibilities of life because he says this fan actually has an inscription on it the, on the fan that he was holding up it was an inscription by a zen master who was a hundred years old it says i don't understand i don't know anything about it that's what he says about this fan the same way that bodhidharma said when when the emperor said who are you he says i have no idea what is this thing i have no idea Anybody who says that he knows what Zen is, is a fraud. Nobody knows. Just like you don't know who you are. All this business about your name and your accomplishments, your certificates, what your friends say about you, you know very well that's not you. But the problem to know who you are is the problem of smelling your own nose. Or you can't do it. Give it up. The whole point of Zen is to beat you in a psychological sense until you finally give up trying. You finally give up trying. To, you know, gain this. And instead of you trying to do it, what ends up happening? You naturally slip into it by accident. And it can only happen that way. When the great Japanese master Dogen came back from China in about the year 1200 to bring his school of Zen into Japan, they asked him, what did you learn in China? He said, the eyes are horizontal, the nose is perpendicular. 
Right, so Dr. Nasser, if you sent your kid to cha- to to college, and he comes back after four years of you paying sixty thousand dollars, and you tell him, son, what did you learn in college? And he tells you, you know, the eyes are horizontal, and the nose is perpendicular. What would you say to him? <laughs> How would you feel? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it'll be unclear what what he learned because he's not really communicating uh, anything except for like obvious things. So exactly. Uh, I'd probably ask him more questions, and, uh, <laughs> you know, just to see like what he's talking about. Exactly. I would hope I, you know, I would hope it wouldn't be uh, too alarming to you. But I think the point of this this extreme statement right here is supposed to be that Zen is not looking for some greater thing than that. It's looking basically to get you in touch with the obvious, even what you might call the mundane or the ordinary. Which I don't think it could be limited to mundane and ordinary. I just think that it might feel that way initially. Or the way you think about it. But really in its reality, it's wondrous. It's ecstatic. It's It could be described in many ways. But reality just is, it just is right there. So we'll do a little bit more and then we'll go to the Zohar. So you see, it is this kind of way of going about things. This method of Zen that has so fascinated the West. And everything, everybody who reads about Zen wonders if somehow this understanding is right under your nose. And you know how it is. Sometimes you get a crowd of people to come into a room, put something in the room that's absurd. Like suppose there was a balloon floating on the ceiling. People could come in, not notice it. Right? Something weird like a funny necktie uh, or somebody with a new dress. But it's really Zen is supposed to be something that's staring you right in the face. And you didn't know that entire time. Alright, so let's pause here with this stuff and now let's go to the Zohar. Welcome, Aiki Beta. Good to have you. Um, hey, Mike. How you doing? So perfect timing. We're about to start uh, some Zohar. So we last time we left off on the Zohar with an entire understanding of uh, all the letters coming up to Hashem saying, I want to be the one to start the Torah. No, I want to be the one to start the Torah. And Aleph is very humble. And that's why Aleph merits to be... Um, you know, this the first of all the letters, and Bet is the beginning of the Torah because of its uh, almost embodiment of the dualism, the above and the below. So let's now continue with another Midrash and another explanation of Bereshit. Bereshit in the beginning. Rabbi Yehudai said, what is Bereshit? He says Bereshit means with wisdom. Be-reshit means with wisdom, right? What do we say in Tehillim? Reshit chokhmah yirad alonai. So reshit is chokhmah, according to this Midrash. Right? And chokhmah really is the very important third sefirah. And it's saying Hashem created uh, with this primordial point of emanation um, this the, the world, right? And reshit is called wisdom and many other places in rabbinic literature as well. Um, Rashid is chokhmah. This is the wisdom on which the world stands, through which one enters hidden high mysteries. Here were engraved six vast supernal dimensions from which everything emerges, from which issued six springs and streams flowing into the immense ocean. Right. So why six? Right. How do we know six? Because Bereshit, Sheet in Aramaic is shish, is six. Bara means to create. So you have bara sheet. Hashem created, or whatever it was, created the six. What are these six? What? The six sefirot. 
Right? So within Chokhmah, Chokhmah is one of the upper Sefirot. Within Chokhmah, the six Sefirot from Chesed till Yesod are etched, subsequently emerging and flowing to the ocean of Shekhinah. Right? And the Shekhinah is the ocean that's going to bring all that into the physical plane. Alright, so Bereshit is Bara Shit. He created the six, the six Sefirot. Um, who created them? So we, I kind of left that a little bit vague. Who created all this stuff that was kind of latent within Chokhmah? The unmentioned, the hidden, unknown. Anybody know what that's talking about? Well, didn't we say God was unknown? Good, so God is unknown, but it's really, in terms of Sefirot, good, it's Keter. It's this Ensof Keter thing, which is like hovering above and also somehow part of the Sefirot. But it's unnamed and it's kind of ethereal. We don't really know what it is, um, and it's it's the unnamed subject of the ver- of the verb bara. So keter and ensof. After you read this, after you read this stuff for a while, you realize that they're just speaking in code. Yes. And you just translate it in your head as it goes through because everything means something else, and it's but it is consistent. Yeah. You know? It's pretty damn consistent. And the same thing like me and ma. We were talking about when in terms in terms of bina and shechinah, it's going to come up again. Um, all this stuff, you're right. These are all just basically code words. You just for, need a, like a little a little dish, dictionary cheat sheet, and then you could just understand what they're talking. Exactly, about. and thank God for these footnotes. It's code for what? So it's code for different sefirot. There's different codes for different sefirot, and they're the function that they play in creation, basically. So here, the the example was chokmah was reshit, and also the six is talking about the six sefirot. In between Hasid and Shekhinah. Um, right? And also the world was created with those and, six and letters. Yeah, yes, and Ensof. Exactly. The top one, and Shekhinah is always the bottom one of the yes. ocean who connects to the world. It's all, you know, you hear it over and over again and then you kind of get it. Exactly. It becomes second nature. Um, it's like learning a new language. And also there's one Midrash here that says the six letters could also be an explanation Yodke, Vavke, and Yodke. Are those six letters? Um, but back to this. Uh, six. Six is also the directions too. Ah, back, interesting. Right, up, down, back, forward. Yes. Um, so I think that, that's part of it as well. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna mention that um, the, the direction stuff soon. That's a great point. So Rabbi Hiya and Rabbi Yosef were walking on the way, as they reached the site of a certain field. Rabbi Hiya said to Rabbi Yosef, "What you have said, Bereshit, is certainly true." For there are six supernal days in the Torah, not more. The others are concealed. But in the Seekers of Creation, we have we have discovered this, right? So he's now making a statement about six days, right? So uh, what are these six that were created? Um, the mystical Torah, Tif Eret, includes the six sefirot from Hesed to Yesod, the six primordial days of creation, whereas the higher sefirot are concealed. So he's saying these the six idea also corresponds to the six days of creation, and it could be that these six sefirot correspond to those six days as well. Um, so that's super interesting. And tiferet is almost like floating above those lower sefirot also. The upper sefirot being the ones that are concealed. Um, and now they're saying we have this seemingly a book called Secrets of Creation. And what did they discover? They discovered this entire thing that we're going to read now. The Holy Hidden One, right? Who is that? That's, of course, Keter. Engraved and engraving in the innards of a recess punctuated by a thrust point. Right? So, Keter, 
is using chokhmah to penetrate into binah, right? The male and the female element being chokhmah and binah, respectively. So binah has this womb or recess, and that's where rahamim comes like rahim, uh, penetrated by the primordial uh, point of chokhmah, right? The compassionate womb almost. Uh, so chokhmah is penetrating into the womb of binah. He engraved that engraving, hiding it away, like one who locks up everything under a single key, which locks everything within a single palace. Right, so something is being hidden here. The key of Chokhmah opens and closes the palace of Bina. That's the, the analogy that's being given. The key opening the palace, which is so interesting because if you think about the, the singularity of creation, it's like this ironic thing, like, well, what, what was it? Was it a point? Was it an, a physical object? Well, if it was a physical object, then in what point of space was it contained? So in my mind, I think about the singularity as like the male element, like the chokhmah, and the binah somehow like the enclosure or the space that wasn't really there but was there, because you can't talk about space during the singularity point. It was just a point. But it's kind of like this ironic uh, dwelling on two levels. Mike, yes. I have a question. I, I have the book. I told you the Zohar book in front of me. This book yes. that I read, you know, in English, and it says it just. I just want to maybe add some value. I love it. Yeah. It says that the first, and I didn't know what this word meant. It said the first in Hawaii Sefira, then it's called Kete or crown. Yes. In which there are two main aspects. The inner aspect of Kete, which is called Atik or Atik Yomin, and the outer aspect called Arif. And pin. So what is what is that? Atik Yomin, I think, means ancient of days, and Arich and Pin, right. I think, means um, like Orech is like length of of uh, and Pin. How do you spell and Pin? Right. I think it's it. A, and it says do do this loftiness. Atik Yomin is sometimes referred as Tamira de Chol Temerin, the most concealed of all. Ah, uh, wow. I think that right. first of all, there's an irony there because it's like. One is length of days in terms of many days, right. but the other one is like that one day is really long, you know, or like... Right, and it says ayin is nothingness. Uh, ayin, okay, yes. Right. Exactly. So that that's that's the the point here is like, you know, similar to the Buddhist stuff you were asking about, like the panoramic view. Here you go. You have this idea of kind of, uh, what's the word, paradox, the paradoxical nature of things. The dual nature of things that you can talk about it from one perspective, but really you can't really talk about it, and you have to be able to dwell on two levels at once, and that's what we're encountering right now is this difficulty of like, is it there? Is it not there? Is it is it a, a singularity or is it space? And right, I think is right. it a recess or it is it a point? Also, just to end on that, Arich Ampin is essentially the expression of God's will. Ah, interesting. So that's really cool because it's coming from Keter, which is coming from that Ensof. It's coming from this, you know, uh, this right. infinity that we don't understand, and that's God's will, uh, which is kind so of Keter, Keter is the crown of the deal. It's the, it's the crown of this whole package. No? Exactly, Keter is the crown, literally. Right. Um, great points. Thank you for adding that. That's awesome. Um, and here we're going to continue talking now about this this uh, this palace and this key. What's going on? Um, so everything is, although everything is hidden away within that palace, the essence of everything lies in that key. 
which closes and opens, right? So the essence of all the everything that's going to be created is contained within almost like the, the sperm, which is like the chokhmah. It contains all like the genetic material that's going to go into the womb of Bina and create all of reality, which we know in that singularity, all the potential and all the, you know, what's going to end up playing out in the universe is contained within that singularity. All the laws of physics, everything that's played out since then. Don't even ask me about free will. That's, that's a story for another time. Within that palace lie hidden treasures, one greater than the other. Within that palace stand gates built cryptically, 50 of them. So now, Dr. Nassi, you were mentioning directions. This is going to come in handy. So there's going to be 50 gates now. Carved into four sides, they were 49. All right, so what happened to that with that other, with that one gate? 49, we know, is like the natural level. Like with Shavuot, you have seven of seven. Seven times seven, that's like the natural order. The one above is the 50th, is like the eighth. Above the seven is the supernatural. So 49 were carved into the four sides of the palace. One gate has no side. What does that mean? Well, it transcended space. Similar to our discussion last week about the Mishkan and the, in the Kodesh HaKodashim and the Holy of Holies, the Aron was enomin hamida, said the Hachamim, that it was not able to be measured. It's space. Um, so no one knows whether it is above or below. It is shut. So nobody can really understand this gateless gate, right? Which is ironic because we discovered that we discussed that earlier in the class. Um, but this one gate that has no space to it, and it almost kind of clues you in. If you can transcend space, you can go through this gate. It's similar to that Zen story we said earlier. How could it be that everything got through except for the tail of the cow? Well, maybe the reason the tail of the cow didn't get through is because you're thinking about it in terms of space. But yes, question. Yeah, doesn't that seem so um, like innovative? No one knows if it's above or below. I mean, it seems like uh, almost uh, you know Heisenberg's uncertainty uh, mm. principle or uh, Schrodinger's cat. It's like it's so uh, you know so far ahead of its time. I yes, mean, we, didn't, we didn't start thinking like that about the uncertainty. In in in, physica- in physicality uh, for you know <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of years, it's wild. To realize that there's you know relativity and uh, and uncertainty, and and you could be here, you could be there. How do you really know? You don't really know. It's uh, it's very interesting. It's unbelievable, and that that's what's so fascinating to me. You know, we we've been reading Rabbi Sassoon in the earlier class. Rabbi Sassoon was both a rabbi and a physicist, and he has a book called Reality Revisited where he discusses a lot of this stuff and he shows that physics now is headed in the direction of where religion has always been, which is this idea of paradox and uncertainty and both things being true at once. That's what's so fascinating that we, we keep noticing here, like why does this sound exactly like the uncertainty principle or why does this sound exactly like the uh, wave-particle duality of an electron? Well, that's because once you approach reality from a very refined perspective here and a very refined perspective there, you're going to end up converging eventually if they're really true. And I think that's what we're finding, is that there's a lot of truth to it. And the truth is, once you try to conceive of it enough, it blows your conceptions to smithereens. And that's the point, is stop trying to conceive of it. Maybe. Right? Just be present with it. Like the ta-ta-ta, the, the thatness, the suchness of reality. That's the lesson I take from it. Um... But these are fantastic points. 
um, a single key, right? A single pass. So coming to the four sides here. 49 gates of Bina are revealed in four lower sefirot, corresponding to the four directions. This is you, Dagdan Asir. Chesed, south, Givurah, north, Tif'eret, east, and Shekhinah, west. The 50th gate remains hidden. It has no side and is shut. So see the Babylonian Talmud Rosh Hashanah, 21b. Rav and Shemuel both said, 50 gates of Binah, understanding we created in the world, all of which were given to Moshe, except for one. As is said, you made him little less than God. In the eighth Mizmor, we quote that all the time. Right? Being a little bit less than God means, Man cannot see me and live. You'll see my back, you can't see my face. So for Moshe Rabbeinu, even for Moshe Rabbeinu, as a living being, he could not see the 50th gate. Because in order to see that 50th gate, you must die. Your ego or whoever you are cannot be you. I know that sounds extreme, but there is a life beyond what we conceive of this finite life. Um, instead of 49, you know, some people read it as 40, but it's probably a misreading of a mem with a schmitchik over there, and that they read it as me um, instead of um, mem. So that's just an aside. Um, okay. So in those gates is one lock and one precise place for inserting the key. So here there's a very intimate relationship between the lock and the key. So what's going on there? So the opening within Bina. So the precise place is the subtle link between the primordial point of Chokhmah and the womb of the Divine Mother Bina. Elsewhere in the Zohar, this site is identified as a path unknown to any vulture. Alright, so there's a hidden path within Bina, within the womb of Bina, where the, the primordial point of Chokhmah entered. So to me, the Zen stories that we said earlier of like playing around with your conception of space is meant to flip it on your head, your conception of space, and tell you once you can let go of that, you can start to get a taste for the real mystical experience. Um, right, so it's more. Yes. Mikey, here's yeah. another book I have. Oh, baby. We're, we're, we're ripping them all out tonight. I want to hear. Uh, the 50th gate by Rabbi No way, the 50th gate. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Unbelievable. So I guess if we read that book, we'll, we'll uh, be on our way to, to finding that one. Yeah, so what's the connection? I just opened it. I haven't read any of this. What's the seven candles, Mike? The seven candles. So I know the seven, basically it's saying there's 49 um, gates that can be conceived right. of by a human being. Within Bina, within space, there's 49 gates that you can understand. But the 50th one is this one that's transcendent. It's Me'al HaTeva. It's beyond the natural order. And in order to understand that one, you in order to understand that one, you have to be like not even alive anymore. So the 50th gate is connected to Hebe land? That is Hebe land. That's the entrance to Narnia. <laughs> That's when you have arrived. Exactly. That is exactly it. That's when you've arrived. Wow. And that's wow, when you wow. realize there was no gate in the first place. Wow. If I may, if I may say oh. such. 
the all thing. The, all, all the gates disappear at that point. Yes, that's what I that's what I would say. And that there's no more there's no more seeking and there's no more finding. It's just hereness and suchness and thatness. Um, and it's almost like emotional wow. when you start thinking about that. Like I love you guys so much, and here we are talking to each other. We're each, you know, on we're each different manifestations of the Big Bang headed out in different directions. One is me, one is you, and we're here in this moment in time sharing this together. One day we're gonna all be reunited as this suchness, as God, as the universe, as the ground of being, whatever you want to call it. We'll, we'll all be whatever it is. Your soul is going to be like the drop returning to the ocean. But the emotionality for me comes from looking at all of you and saying like, wow, we're, we're, we're just passing through. We're going at a million miles an hour and, you know, we're just, we're like ships passing in the night. But it's an honor and a privilege to be a spark over here talking to you, spark over there. That's what they said. Isn't that the line? Am I quoting right to Chafetz Chaim when the guy came to visit him? And he told him, he went and yes. he saw the Chafetz Chaim. I think it was the Chafetz Chaim. Yep. He, he had a little a little, a little room and a broken furniture. And, mm. and he told him, Rabbi, you live here. This is it. I don't <laughs> understand. Where's all your beautiful furniture? Where's all your stuff? So he goes, where's yours? So he goes, I'm passing through. So Chafetz Chaim said, I'm passing through also. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly the feeling. That when you're on that level of like really connectedness to the here and now and to the transcendent, you start to realize like it's all just passing through. And it doesn't make sense to cling to these transient things. That doesn't mean you can't live beautifully and involved and passionately and love the people around you. It means don't be bamboozled by form, by the illusion of permanence. Because it's all constantly in flux. Right? The story you're telling yourself shouldn't bamboozle you. Um, so no one knows whether it's above or lower. But it, it is shut. Um, in those gates is one lock and one precise place for inserting the key. Marked only by the impress of the key. Known only to the key. Or it's only Chochmah knows that exact place. So it's almost like a hint to you. Use your Chochmah in some capacity to find the secret. Concerning this mystery, it is written, Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning God created, Bereshit is the key in closing all, closing and opening. Six gates are contained in that key that closes and opens. Let's see what they say here. So the six sefirot hidden within Chochmah, alright, so those are all hidden, and let's see. Oh, okay. Oh, so one, one more point we got to make before we go to the next thing. When it closes those gates, enclosing them within itself, then indeed, Bereshit, a revealed word combined with a concealed word. Bara, created, is always concealed, closing, not opening. So what's going on here? The word Bereshit contains two words. Bara, created, referring to the hidden mystery of creation, and Sheet, six, referring to the revelation of the six sefirot. Right, so it contains within it both hidden and revealed. Yehuda Alibis argues that the insistence on the concealed nature of bara alludes to a different pronunciation and meaning. Bera, son, the divine son. Right, so this hiddenness could also be bera sheet that you are the divine son of the six. You you are the manifestation of 
God in in a way. You are like God's son. I don't want to sound too much like Jesus here, but it does say in the Torah, you are the children of God. And the, the, the meaning of that seems to be contained within Bereshit. And we're going to see soon a very beautiful thing about Abraham. I know we don't have much more time, but if you guys want to w- remain on for a few more minutes, we can maybe get to it. Rabbi Yosef said, certainly so. I heard the holy lamp, talking about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, right? And of course we know Rabbi Abahu in the Gemara is called Butsina Den Hora, lamp of light and Berachot. Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakai is called Neri Israel. The lamp of Israel. So we have this is a common uh, name for certain rabbis, right? So they say bara is a concealed word, closing, not opening. As long as the world was locked within the world, within the word bara, it was not. It did not exist, right? So the world and the uh, all of this stuff was hidden within bara. It didn't exist while it was hidden. Enveloping everything was tohu chaos, and as long as tohu reigned, the world was not, and it did not exist. When did that key open gates? When was it fit to be fruitful to generate offspring? When Abraham arrived. As is written, these are the generations of heaven and earth, when they were created. And we have learned, don't read it, read it, through Abraham. Whereas everything was concealed in the word, now the letters are transposed and rendered fruitful. A pillar emerged, generating offspring. Eved, organ, the holy foundation on which the world stands. Right, so I'll leave you guys with this idea, which is so moving to me, which is saying that the world was not even created, in a sense, until Abraham arrived on the scene. That in, a, in, another, in other words, there would have been no reason to create the world unless a man like Abraham was there. What does that mean? That means that there's an element of relationship between that level of moral consciousness and the world that exists. And it's almost like the world as inhabited by God cannot even be conceived of until a person like Abraham arrives on the scene. So let's read some of this stuff. All right, so the lower sefirot constitute the pattern of all the worlds. Toho is chaos, which is actually referring to chokhmah, the primordial divine substance, like pure potential corresponding to the Greek philosophical concept of Hyle, primordial matter. So when Abraham arrived, Abraham symbolizes, furthermore, and this is what Dr. Nasser was talking about, it's really a code. So what I was saying is all this beautiful stuff about Abraham, the person, but Abraham also symbolizes the Sefirah of Hesed, the first of the lower Sefirot emanating from Bina. That you can't even talk about the creation of the world until Bina gave birth to Hesed. That was the first sefirah given birth to by Bina. And that's Abraham. Abraham is that Hasid. So everything we said about Abraham is true. But at the same time, what it's saying is, Olam Hasid Yibane. The world is built on Hasid. The world is built on this love, this somehow flowing nature of reality. It didn't exist until Abraham. It's saying that that idea didn't exist until Hesed was brought into the world, until Abraham was able to be in a relationship with the world, in in a in a philosophical sense. But but hear me out. It's like this idea of what um, Stephen Hawking would say. What is it that breathes the fire into the equations? He's like, all right, if I could find a theory of everything, I'll understand all these laws of physics. 
But why should there be something rather than nothing? What is it that breathes the fire into the equations? Why are there equations to speak about in the first place? Why is there anything? That's Abraham. What do I mean by that? I mean that's Hesed. Hesed is this inexplicable, ineffable thing but the idea that it's that it flowing through all of reality. Yeah. The the idea of it didn't exist until Abraham. I don't think it's about the idea of it that didn't exist until Abraham. I think it's the that the, everything right. we're saying is a metaphor for this idea of Hesed. But at the same time, it's almost like Hashem saying, "I don't even want to create the world." This is one one perspective. What's the point of creation if not for Abraham? That's one thing. Fine. But on the other hand, what is Abraham talking about in a deeper mystical sense? He's talking about this idea of chesed. That it's this thing that, that flows through all of reality, which we don't understand how or why, but it just is here. That's what chesed is. It's this benevolent, loving kindness that flows through all of everything. Um, so we'll end with this. Be'abraham, according to the Bioshua ben Kurha, Be'ebare'am, when they were created, is an anagram of Be'abraham, which we said. Whereas everything was concealed, Ever, the letters of the word bara were rearranged into Ever, which not only forms the beginning of Abraham, but also signifies the male organ Yesod, the divine phallus and cosmic pillar. Right, so this is the thing that led to the male element that created all of the world. In a literal sense, in this idea of Ever. So, I'll, I'll close with this, and that is, when you can tap into the mystical experience, when you can tap into this feeling of beyond space, what's the word that comes to mind is ecstasy. Ecstasy is ex-stasis, outside of space. Right? And why do we feel that that's ecstatic? Why is the experience of every guy tripping on acid? Or doing any of this stuff, why is it ecstasy? Well, the answer is because of Hesed. Because you feel this within the two, there's really one we said last time. This relationship between yin and yang and all the laws of physics and all these particles that are flowing into each other. Well, you know something about that stuff? It's all Hesed, it's all love, it's all this beautiful, ecstatic experience. And I just want to leave you guys with that, you know, because I think hopefully we'll have one more class. Um, before we end the season, but but if this is the last class, it was a, it was an honor and a privilege. So thank you everybody for for tuning in. Any questions or comments, please feel free.